You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Blogging Heads TV. This is Culture Determined. I'm your host, Ari Codewade, and my guest today is Ben Burgess. Uh, ben, could you please introduce yourself? Uh, sure. Thank you for having me. I am a philosophy instructor at Georgia State University Perimeter College and a uh, columnist for, uh, for Jacobin and uh, the host of uh, Give Them an Argument, uh, the uh, podcast, YouTube show. Uh, but, uh, but also, uh, I wrote a book. Yes. I'm holding the book up to the camera right now. <laughs> um, Cancel Comedians While the World Burns. A critique of the contemporary left uh, from Zero Books, um, and we've had uh, Doug Lane from Zero Books on this show before. Um, so uh, thank you for coming on and uh, talk and talking about the the book with me. So um, it's so after reading the book, it seems like the the impetus for writing the book, or at least part of it, had to do with a specific event with Joe Rogan and Bernie Sanders. Would, would that was that accurate or or or, or uh, not? Well, I mean, I, I think that this was stuff I was certainly thinking about uh, before that happened, and and even you know, and even writing a book. But it's certainly a perfect example of the of the sort of thing that's 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 driving it. Um, like uh, because, and, and in fact, actually, like a really perfect example because because uh, it's somebody who's even among other things a comedian, you know, for the uh, the title of the book. Uh, but in general, the frustration that drove the book, uh, was that it seemed to me that way too many people who I agree with, uh, politically, I mentioned earlier that, you know, that I write for Jacobin, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a member of the democratic socialists of America. Uh, all of my political goals are pretty much what you'd think they would be from, uh, from those affiliations. Uh-huh. Uh, but it seems to me that a lot of people who agree with me, uh, about what we want, uh, have bought into a kind of counterproductive culture of moralism uh, that is much more about evaluating people's uh, moral character, uh, trying to, to you know denounce and excommunicate you know problematic people, uh, than it is about thinking about how to appeal to the broadest possible mass of people to actually achieve all those political goals, the goals that we care about, getting everybody health care, ending the wars, you know, democratic socialism. Uh, and the incident that you mentioned with uh, with Rogan and Sanders is a, is a perfect example because I, I believe actually just before the Iowa caucus, uh, Joe Rogan, uh, who is probably the most popular podcaster in the world, uh, <laughs> said that, uh, you know, he liked Bernie Sanders and he thought he was going to vote for, you know, for Bernie Sanders in the primaries. And... The Sanders campaign, of course, um, like tweeted out the clip, uh, like, a, you know, like clipped a little video of, of Rogan saying all the nice things about their candidate and saying that he was going to vote for him and, and tweeted it out, which it would have been bizarre if they hadn't done, you know, like that's something you want to shout from the rooftops if at all possible, especially because Rogan is somebody who, you know, is a bit politically eclectic and could land in different places. And so it should be a selling point that this is the one that he landed in, uh, especially because part of the premise of the Sanders campaign was that there are people who would vote for Bernie who wouldn't necessarily just vote for any Democrat, you know, in a general election. And especially because Rogan has a vast audience uh, of people who are in many cases not terribly political. Uh, so this this sounds perfect like this is a this is a gift from the gods uh but 
uh, the reaction of a lot of people was, oh, my God, Bernie Sanders has, endorsed, has accepted and, and even touted the endorsement of this terrible, problematic uh, person, Joe Rogan. And, of course, a lot of that was you know, ginned up by bad faith actors, supporters of other candidates. But what really disturbed me was that I saw so many people with that little Democratic Socialist red rose emoji in their Twitter handles uh, who were – at least taken in by it or going along with it, saying, "Yeah, absolutely. You know, he shouldn't have. You know, he shouldn't have accepted this endorsement uh, from uh, from Joe Rogan." I, I, you know, there are people in left media, you know, who are saying things like that. Uh, there's somebody in left media uh, who uh, is like a host of a fairly, you know, uh, well-known left podcast uh, who is bringing up my, def you know, my defense of the uh, Sanders uh, Rogan endorsement in an article that I co-wrote with Michael Brooks at the time. Uh, I like day before yesterday, uh, you know, cause, cause he was still mad about it. Uh, and, uh, and, and it, and it just strikes me as, as, as really perverse, uh, because especially in this case, it's such a perfect instance. Cause anytime you're actually trying to take political power in the real world, you're always going to have to confront conflicts between values. You're going to have to make trade-offs, decide, you know, who you're willing to, you know, make alliances with and what you're willing to give up for those alliances. I don't think those things are escapable if you want to do real politics. But in this case, there wasn't even any of that. There wasn't. It wasn't like Rogan endorsed some Sanders. Sanders after some process of negotiation, you know, it's like okay, well, you you can't. Uh, you know, you got to change your Medicare for all plans. So you're not funding, you know, trans people's, you know, medical uh, you know, uh, needs now. Uh, none of that happened, right? It was accepted for free, and it was it was offered for free. It was accepted. He said, "Yeah, great. Thanks to have you on board." And that itself is seen by a problem. And the way that this connects, in my mind, to the larger theme of the book, is that it seems to me that if you're upset about that under those circumstances then I question the extent to which, in practice, you see left politics as a project to change material reality uh, and start to wonder how much you see it as a symbolic way of performing certain kinds of moral commitments uh, without any expectation of, uh, of meaningful payoff, which I get where it comes from. I think that the left, you know, people, anyone to the left of liberalism, that's a perspective that's been really out in exile, especially in countries like the U.S. and the U.K. for a very long time. Uh, and so I think that when you are that distant from real world power, it is natural to start thinking that way. Uh, but I, I think that the problem is that there's a vicious circle because the more you are that way and the more you end up focusing on interrogating other people's moral commitments and say, OK, you say you want the same things that I do, but do you really – uh, the less appealing that makes uh, that makes you, and uh, the the harder it is to actually reverse the original situation. That would be my kind of core argument. Mm -hmm. So the book is, you know, is um, from a, a leftist perspective, put out by a leftist press. It's, right. it's meant for left. It's you know a sort of tough love yeah. letter to leftists. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I I am not a socialist, so I, sure. I I'm not the core audience for this. But um, yeah, so but. Uh, and probably, uh, well, I don't know exactly what the viewership of this is. Certainly people who watch this on YouTube, I would say, are, are not a socialist. Maybe the uh, uh, other people uh, uh, maybe are. You can chime in in the comments uh, expressing whatever political belief you want. Uh, but anyway, so I guess I maybe I've, I've somewhat, you know, yeah, I'm not the I, I'm not the envisioned reader of this, but I thought it was interesting and there's lots of stuff to talk about. So, I mean, so 
Yeah, and, and it's, it's funny that people are still mad about that, the, the Rogan Sanders thing, considering uh, a lot of stuff has happened, you know, since then. Yeah. Um, <laughs> certainly much more important than that particular media episode, like the global pandemic. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so that, this was like January 2020 when this little incident, I mean, little in, in, yeah, yeah. in quotes, has happened. So like, yeah, there's been a lot of other stuff happening. And the fact that people are still mad at you about that one particular article, I mean, I mean, we should, I guess, Mentioned this, you know, Michael Brooks, your co-author, he tragically passed away last year. So, like, yeah, he's been dead for for several months now, which which gives you a sense of how long ago uh, all all of this uh, all of this took place. Uh, and I mean, the context in like the, I mean, I almost don't want to explain the context because it's so like stupid. But the uh, but but I guess just real briefly, um, there was a video that's been going around uh, the last few days. Uh, you know, because I think it is like, in a from my perspective, in a grim way, kind of unintentionally funny, and I think a lot of people react to it that way. Uh, it's a uh, it's it's a CIA like the CIA put out this video right. about uh, with this this monologue from from a CIA employee. Well, we will uh, we will if people haven't seen this, I don't know if it penetrated into the non Twitter world, but we'll include a link on the blog site to this thing. It was put out by the you know at CIA the official CIA Twitter account. It's like a recruiting video kind of thing. Yes. And yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's like a recruiting video that like uses like every like conceivable combination of buzzwords. It's uh, the, the, woman, the woman says, actually, I just made a joke to me about this like 20 minutes ago. So I, that's what I saw. It. She says, um, as a cisgender millennial with generalized anxiety disorder, uh, you know, like I'm proud to work at the CIA. And, um, <laughs> yeah. and so that, I mean, that really set off. It's funny. I mean, almost everyone seems to be pissed off at this one particular thing. Maybe some people in the middle or centrist middle or something are happy about it, but, but like people from left and right are both like, this is very infuriated for various different reasons. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's just funny. I, I mean, it's just kind of, it's just kind of funny. Uh, and, and from my perspective, I think it's kind of a, a grimly absurd, like caricature of, I mean, it's basically like a, a joke that, I think people like me have been making for a very long time about like how there's like a, a kind of liberalism that's, that's all about uh, trying to have uh, more uh, disabled transgender drone pilots. Uh, and, and it's, it's, it's like the CIA is like just doing the joke, but with a straight face. Yes. Uh, there's a, there's a famous tweet that, you know, um, says liberals, um, you know, the, 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 the right is saying like, you know, uh, lock up, you know, lock up all the, the migrants and like throw away the key. And then the liberals are saying hire more female guards. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's an infamous yeah. and very apt tweet uh, by yeah. that guy, Mabel Cocaine. Is that, is that, is that who that was by? But you, you oh, see that. that sounds, I, I don't think I saw it, but that sounds like a Mabel Cocaine tweet. Yeah, but... that you see that still popping up sometimes as, as like, yeah, as the, there's, it, it is, I think, a hacker uh, <laughs> critique to say that there are some parts of, the liberal world that you yeah, just want to see, um, you know, uh, that we're very happy that Gina Haspel, a, a woman, yeah, yeah, became yeah, head exactly. of the CIA and saw this as, you know, victory exactly. for, so, for gender rights and uh, so forth. So, but then as like, as left Twitter will do, there was like the immediate thing. And then there was like a weird meta controversy about it. Uh, because basically like, when some people like Glenn Greenwald were, were tweeted it out to basically make, the exact point we've just been making. Uh, then there were other people 
who sort of, even though they kind of agreed with that point, were sort of still somehow mad at the first people uh, because they interpreted what the first people were saying or they found a way to interpret it as saying that uh, it's like, I don't know, like diversity is bad or something like that. Uh, And in commenting, um, and this is my first mistake, I mean, I should have just like, as always, the right answer is just log off, do something else. But, you know, in, in commenting on the meta controversy, I had said what I thought was a pretty anodyne thing, which is, look, everybody in this discussion basically supports, you know, gay rights and trans rights and all these things. Uh, that's not the issue. Uh, and, and then, um, and then this, you know, this person got mad at me and said, you know, well, you say that, but you know, you yourself, you know, are, 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 we're belittling these concerns and your, you know, defense of, uh, of, of the, uh, of, of the Rogan endorsement. And that, that, that's kind of how it, you know, it came back around, which is like, I've got to say, it's kind of infuriating because one of the arguments that Michael and I, you know, made last year uh, is that if you want to, um, like, if you want to advance these exact concerns, uh, you know, like uh, inclusive, you know, inclusion for uh, for for trans people in that example, uh, then I think electing the candidate. Who said that? Uh, who wanted to make all healthcare, including you know hormone therapies, etc., free, uh, and and who's been on the right side of, of those issues since forever, since you know since since like the the 1980s, you know when he was mayor of Burlington, uh, and 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 it was like deeply you know unusual, right? You know for anybody to talk about stuff like that. Uh, elected Bernie Sanders uh, president, you know, seemed like the uh, seemed like the way to do it. Uh, and and we also you know made the point that to the extent and honestly I think it's exaggerated the extent to which he has had you know bad views on on, on those issues. But you know even if for the sake of argument you know Rogan was all that bad on those those questions, um, you know I think that the idea that the best way to to persuade him uh, or you know maybe more saliently the masses of people who listen to him. Uh, to to be better, right? If 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 there is, you know, if there are aspects of those issues on which they're bad, like the best way to to get them to be better about it is probably not to uh, to denounce them and and uh, even when they even when they offer to support you to say nope, uh, you know we don't want you know we don't want your support because you're a terrible person. That's probably not a way to get anybody to come around to your point of view about anything. Uh, you know, like like I, th- I think. Um, I, th- I think a much healthier, like way. I mean, and, and I mean, not that this is necessarily 100% effective. You don't, you can't, as you know, uh, Mick Jagger so wisely teaches us. You know, you can't always get what you want, but uh, <laughs> you know, so maybe sometimes not everybody can be convinced of ever- everything. But to the extent that people can come around, uh, I think that like having them feel like they're part of some sort of common, you know, movement with you, and 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 that you are willing to accept them while, while still having those other conversations strikes me as a approach that's, you know, to the extent that, you know, either approach is going to bear fruit. Uh, one that's much more likely to bear fruit than, you know, than, than just, than just say, Nope. Uh, I have heard that, you know, that not everything you've said about this issue is unlightened. Uh, therefore, um, you know, until you grovelingly repent, I will never have anything to do with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and you, there's another example that you start off the book with, 
which is, I guess I had totally missed this one, but Louis C.K., you know, cut a check to the Biden campaign at some point last year, and um, then people found out about it, there was an uproar, and um, and the Biden campaign returned the check, because I guess Louis C.K., um, you know, has been canceled. But so, yeah, there's a lot of interesting paths you could go for this. So I, I did an, an episode of this show yeah. in, the, in the fall of 2019 about cancel culture, um, mm. and it was right after the incident where... SNL hired a group of new um, cast members, and then one of them, an old video of him on a podcast or something, came out where he was, you know, making offensive racial jokes about Asians and, and so forth. And then that guy, he like lost, you know, he, his yeah. uh, contract was rescinded or something like that. And at the time, I was thinking like, you know, um, it's you know, cancellation broadly <laughs> understood is hard to do for a comedian because a comedian almost never has a boss. Uh, usually, yeah, right. they're sort of independent people and they travel around to clubs all around the country in normal times and you can't you know you could try to have a campaign you know going after like the medium-sized theaters in like state capitals across the country so that louis ck can't perform there but it probably won't work because you know louis ck still is funny and has will draw a crowd and so the theaters will make money so you can't really do that and then the snl thing like that like you know they hire stand-up comedians to be on the show and this guy um, got got canceled. So that was one of the, you know, one of the times where it was like a cancellation happened and then like someone lost a job or lost a job offer yeah, right. very, very quickly. But it is weird that a lot of the stuff focuses on, focuses on comedians and their various misdeeds because like, you know, uh, Louis C.K. still has an active career. Um, sure. Aziz Ansari is this weird marginal case, but like he had a Netflix special, which he talked about his going through the ringer with this, article we don't understand all that but it is you know the focus on comedians is strange but then you have rogan who's this hybrid figure someone from the world of comedy and then she was the host of fear factor and i don't know if you ever actually was a stand-up he must have been at some point in his career and then has his podcast the most popular one in the world in which he um maybe half the time talks about like mma and um psychedelics and stuff yeah, right, but then right. also has on various you know sort of people from the world of uh you know politics and um you know the public marketplace of ideas or, or whatever but he is so i so maybe he's controversial in some because he said mean things about trans people at various times i mean he's also controversial because he is um, sort of friends or something with Alex Jones, who is maybe like the furthest yeah. per- person who, you know, still sort of exists, has like a public profile, but is so far out into like crazy land and being a horrible person that like, okay, so if, you know, if Alex Jones had endorsed Bernie and then Bernie had retweeted the Alex Jones endorsement, yeah. which of course it never would have happened, right. then like it would have been fair to get mad about that, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think if uh, I, I think that in the case, I mean, where Alex Jones had, yeah, I don't know, I don't know how that would have worked, right? You know, it's like, yeah, like he he'd somehow decided that like uh, Bernie Sanders was the only candidate who wasn't a lizard person, and which uh, would have been pretty unlikely given what lizard people actually. Yeah, yeah, given means, Alex Jones' but, uh, yeah. views, that would be very unlikely <laughs> to be the uh, the, the one he picks, uh, but. Uh, and and then um, and then Bernie Sanders, you know, had uh, had said, uh, you know, thank you, thank you, Alex, you 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 are you are correct. I'm not a lizard person. Uh, <laughs> then um, then I, I I could see that raising like some eyebrows for sure. Um, 
Although I, I'd also say, you know, there's a there's a question. I mean, even you know, like the Alex Jones Rogan connection is interesting because, because uh, of course, I mean, this is part of why Rogan is controversial that he he has, like, he has a wide array of guests, uh, in, in, including you know, including some who I would regard as like, um, as well. Um, politically monstrous or just sort of weird lunatics uh and 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 also and also guests who who i think are great uh and he uh he tends to um you know he tends to do a lot of 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 nodding along and uh, and not just you know of course in any conversation right i'm sure you could do a montage of me nodding while people say things i disagree with it was like hours long you know because that's right. just sort of how conversation works you know but uh but he often conveys the impression, at least, of agreeing with everything uh, that uh, that a particular guest is saying. There are there are notable exceptions to that, but you know he he does often convey that impression. And it is like a really weird array of guests. Like so, for example, on election night uh, last year, uh, Rogan's guests uh, were at the same time uh, Alex Jones and, uh, Kyle Kalinske, uh, you know, Kalinske being a, uh, a very left wing, um, like, uh, I don't know if he'd call himself a socialist, but certainly like a Bernie crack kind of, you know, progressive, uh, commentator. Uh, and, and that's, uh, you know, like, like there's something very, you know, like there's something very funny about that sometimes. Uh, I, I think that it really shows the way that, that Rogan, uh, is somebody who, as you say, he's at least as interested, you know, in psychedelics, MMA, comedy, you know, half a dozen other subjects, you know, as, as he is interested in politics. And I think that he's basically um, like a, a lot of people, uh, you know, since very often, I think, um, especially, you know, I mean, I'm sure other people do too, but I see my friends on the left doing this, uh, you know, we, we sort of fall into the assumption that everybody has has sort of everybody has a worldview, you know. Everybody's like a, uh, uh, a you know socialist or prog- progressive or conservative or libertarian or whatever. And, but, and the fact is that most people don't. Oh yeah, I definitely. I mean, yeah, most the most Americans polit- the politics political beliefs of most Americans would probably be contradictory, and you know the sort of thing where they, um, you know. Uh, just vote for someone because they like their smile or something like that. Like most people are no, not no, thinking no, about this kind, kind of stuff. Like, like, like most, you know, most people. And I think in this particular respect, I mean, I don't want to exaggerate his every manness. I think that, uh, you know, I think Joe Rogan is a very specific type of guy. Let's put it that way. But the, uh, uh, you know, he is a type, but you know, uh, you know, like the, the guy who's like, you know, you, uh, you know, like you, you maybe meet at, you know, your gym and, you know, you did mushrooms with once and, you know, he told you about the Mayans and, you know, that's, uh, uh, but like, he's, he's also like a really good guy to hang out with and like, <laughs> right. you know, you, you know, you went to see a game together. Um, like, but I think the sense in which he's a kind of every manish is that he is very representative, I think, of the way that most people are in the sense that, he has political reactions to things. He has political impulses, but he hasn't necessarily taken the time to think about it enough for those reactions and impulses to cohere together into a uh, into a consistent worldview. And the reason that I'm, I'm interested in this sort of weird moralistic overreaction uh, to to Rogan type figures or 
I'm, I'm interested in the way that the, you know, the, the CK thing played out uh, or, you know, the, the Dave Chappelle stuff I mentioned or at the, uh, at the beginning or other cases is not, uh, is not primarily that I'm, I'm like, that I'm worried that like any of these people that I mentioned are going to be like out on the street. And like, that's at the top of my list of, of, cons- you know, like humanitarian concerns, you know, about, uh, about the world, uh, to put it mildly. Right. Like I think that in, in some cases, people's, you know, people's careers, um, you know, are ruined by that. Although there's also degrees of ruined and, you know, and, and destitution is, is very rarely the cards, right. Like, like, like Louis CK, you know, uh, has a lot less money than he, he had, but I mean, he's going to be totally fine, uh, in the, uh, in the long run. Um, it's not primarily because of that. Like it's, it's something that, I mean, I, I sort of picked as the opening chapters as, as kind of like the, uh, the intro into the book and, and for the title, uh, because it seems to me that if, that if you're interested in sort of a culture of moralistic nonsense, that's politically counterproductive for, for doing the things that the, the left wants to do, uh, then a sort of, vividly perfectly absurd example of that is getting mad about um about comedians because uh like the idea that that this that like you should be very concerned with like what the um what the implied ideological content is of like a stand-up set uh and and i realize of course uh that you know we're the three examples that are mentioned are very different because in one in one case you know the Chappelle case. People were getting mad about the content of the stand-up, and the uh, in in the Louis C.K. thing case. I mean, you know, I'm sure everybody knows at this point what happened there. You know, but I mean, that that's what about something he did, not right. something not something that he said. Uh, and and the the Rogan case, it's you know, it's it's more complicated. It has more to do with his other role. Uh, but uh, but certainly in cases where you're you're very concerned about comedy politically, uh, I think that one. This is just the ultimate example of a excessive focus on morally evaluating individuals at the expense of uh, of, of like what we should be focusing on uh, politically. Because who cares what comedians think on some level? Uh, and and I think it also maybe reveals something. Um, and you know, and and I think that in this part, to be fair. You know, you said that the, the book is a tough love letter to the left, which is exactly right. Uh, but to be fair, some of what I'm talking about in, in the in the comedy chapter uh, is, more, you know, I think mostly about people who are more, you know, in most cases, probably just like regular, you know, normie liberals, you know, that, that anything uh, to the uh, to the left of that. Uh, but I think that there is something in the collective imagination of American progressives and the way they think about comedy that's like deeply weird and what i suggest in the book is that the the sort of focus on on comedians who are regarded as bad is the flip side of this weird tendency to worship comedians who are seen as as good uh the obvious example would be john stewart uh in the uh, in the bush era uh you know who who was sort of adopted as as this like uh, almost like this representative of of at least american you know uh, left liberalism and and as somebody who in fact large numbers of uh, large numbers of american progressives were willing to uh, travel to washington yes you talk about that somewhat forgotten episode from 2010 the rally to restore 
sanity and or fear, I think was was part of it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, it was Colbert in his character. Because that was the Colbert half. Yeah, Colbert the, Report, uh, and, yeah which I uh, which actually my my mother went to um, in uh, in 2010, and um, I, I did I did not attend. But you know, at that time, if I had been closer to DC, I probably would have. I probably sure. would have gone because I like I liked Stewart sure. and, and Colbert uh, during that time. But um, yeah, but you know, pointing uh, trying to make um, comedians into uh, leaders or moral figures is uh, problematic. You know, uh, not, not to use that word. Yeah. Uh, that's the first word that came to mind. But like, it just you know, it just leads you in weird places because. You know, like stand-up comedians often are just reputable types. Like yeah, I think that's yeah. putting it mildly, and um, and also like the the comedian's commitment is to a joke and a laugh, not to yeah, like right. uh, principles of uh, of you know anything higher. And and like so, like one of the I mean, so one of the things that is it's, it's complicated, but like you know a lot of um, you know. So a lot of this book is about how uh, online, le- the online left is specifically yeah. like people who spend a lot of time on Twitter and cracking jokes and fighting with each other and doing wasting time on Twitter. Uh, how you know the the incentives of Twitter are bad and yeah. distort various things. I, I definitely agree with that, and um, and it's almost I, I almost think you could have gone farther with looking at how. Basically, like, bad Twitter is for, you know, almost pretty much everything except for Twitter itself. Um, yeah, you right. know, bad for America, but it's helped Donald Trump, it helped Donald Trump become president, it helped, you know, QAnon organize them, yeah. probably happening more on Facebook and stuff, but, um, uh, you know, probably for most people who spend a lot of time on there, it's, it's bad for their minds and souls and so forth, I include myself in this. Uh, also, it's addictive, it's, you know, it's a waste of time. You feel like you're accomplishing something. Really, you're accomplishing very little or nothing, or hurting yourself actively. Um, you know, very little good ever comes to it to it for any individual person. Whereas something bad could potentially happen if you tweet the wrong thing at, at any given moment. So, like, the rewards are super low. The risks are super high. It's just it's horrible. And if you know Thanos could snap his finger and it disappeared forever, uh, the world would be a better place. Um, sure. So yeah. So there's that. And I was thinking like. So, so, so in some ways, like, sort of the, the modern, the, a lot of left people found each other via Twitter, and, like, the Chapo Trap House guys, I think, probably found each other via Twitter, or maybe the stuff, something awful bores before that, um, and so there's, you know, from the perspective of a socialist, there's some good things, like, people, like, being exposed sure. to different ideas, or saying, you should read this, or find out about this podcast, YouTube show, whatever, sometimes good, sometimes bad, but it's mostly bad. And so, yeah, it just distorts people's behavior in all sorts of antisocial ways and just provides um, the incentive to do things that in the real world are bad. So, so one thing Twitter rewards is like um, ver- like high emotion, mor- morally charged content. Mm-hmm. And so if you are like denouncing someone being like this person like wants trans kids to die, like that's right. going to get 500 retweets. Where if you're like, well, this person has like some good ideas, some bad ideas, kind of a mixed bag. That's gonna get three retweets, and it can go on on any topic. It doesn't have to be political. I've said this before. Like, you know, when you see sometimes things turn on Twitter, and you get like a little keyhole into an alternate Twitter universe where having to do with like K-pop bands or the Marvel Cinematic Universe or something. And the same fights, the same kind of fights are happening when they're arguing about 
the characters in Marvel movies as when people on left Twitter are arguing about Bernie Sanders and there's people who are like, you know, how how dare you think Hawkeye couldn't carry a movie himself? Like, this character is one of the most important... And so it, it's just like people... So just like the material form of Twitter encourages this kind of crazy behavior yeah. and that is, is all bad. So, you know, so as a socialist, I assume you're a materialist. Like, what are the... Right. Can we look at material solutions instead of like saying... Don't do telling people don't do this. This is bad. Sure. Like so, one material solution is you like get the hell off Twitter. Uh, but are there other? You know, how is there is there something we can change about the system or the material that makes makes it so that th- these sort of things stop happening as much? Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot there, but I guess I'd I'd say that maybe we should uh, separate two different issues, which are going to be related, but uh, analytically at least should be separate. One of them is what's wrong with the left and the other related issue is maybe um, what's wrong with like the world that Twitter and not just Twitter, but you know, uh, Twitter is definitely part of the toxic cocktail factors uh, has, has sort of given us in general, right? Like, and, uh, and as far as that, that second one uh, that's, that's where I, you know, I I get the most at least short-term pessimistic uh, because uh, as you say, you know, to to do something about it, you, you know, you have to you have to change the material conditions that uh, that give rise to it, uh, and that is uh, that that's tricky uh, because uh, I, you know, I mean, I would argue, like like really, you know, putting my commie hat on here, that like to to a great extent, um, like the cluster of cultural trends um, that we broadly think of as, you know, cancel culture, which is an imperfect term for what it's supposed to describe, but for the sake of simplicity, you know, like I, I tend to use it cause I don't really like fighting about words when we can fight about things. Mm-hmm. Um, like, uh, that I think cancel culture is just kind of a general disease of our, you know, neoliberal late capitalist hellscape. I think that, I think that, uh, the, mm-hmm factors that that tend to give rise to it i mean it's not monocausal unfortunately if it were it would probably be easier to fix uh but the factors that give rise to it uh, certainly include the fact that uh we live in an incredibly atomized society where people often feel most connected to others online uh the fact that the social media platforms themselves as you sort of suggested uh in, incentivize our our worst behavior uh the you know the uh, the companies that that own those platforms, no less than the companies that sell cigarettes. You know, have every incentive to uh, make their product as addictive as at all possible. That's that's certainly not a uh, that's certainly not a secret. Uh, and right. as, as and pr- of- cigarettes, I mean, at least you know you're smoking a cigarette probably feels good. Yeah, <laughs> at the time. No, that's Even people who are trapped in the social media world are often miserable. Look, I've I've, I've, I've had. Um, uh, I don't, you know, I don't smoke anymore, but you know, like, like, like I've, I've, I've had nights of, of like, you know, drinking and like, I'll smoke a bunch of cigarettes over the course of the night. And like, that's at least a combination that feels nice. You know, the, uh, the, uh, like the Twitter stuff often, often right. if, you're, if you're drinking and tweeting the whole time, you'd probably wake yeah, up drinking with a different and kind of, doesn't, yeah, doesn't kind of really feel whatever, nice yeah. even at the time. Yeah. And it feels even worse than the other one does the next morning. Yes. Um, so, and and I think that as part of those bad incentives, like, uh, I mean, I'm sure you've read uh, John Ronson's book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Uh, and in there, he has this great analogy about uh, speeding, uh, like electronic uh, speed signs that'll, that'll show you uh, the speed limit and next to it will show you how fast you're going. 
uh, and as you slow down, right, you know, you'll you'll see that the numbers coming into alignment. Uh, and one of the points he makes is that, in principle, this doesn't seem like it should work. It shouldn't do anything because it doesn't give anyone any information they don't already have. Uh, the the sign like this this posted speed limit you can get that from a regular non electronic speeding uh, speed sign, uh, speed limit sign, and uh, every car has an odometer in it that you know like that uh, that tells you uh, how fast you're going. Uh, but somehow there are studies showing that this is actually effective uh, in in getting people to slow down uh, because there's this in that case benevolent feedback loop. You get this like immediate reinforcement for slowing down as you see those two numbers coming together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's maybe uh, some yeah I forgot I did so that book should pro- I should probably get, go back to it. it came out in about 2010 or so and it really anticipated yeah. a lot of what was to come and yeah he was talking about public shaming. So, you know, related to how term cancel culture developed, but, um, yeah, that's, um, that, yeah, I mean, but the, the thing with the, um, you know, when you see the, um, the, the, you know, speed number, how fast you're going on the side of the road, there also is some, um, sort of public aspect to it because like yeah, yeah. the car behind you or something or the people walking by can see how fast exactly you're going. And then maybe that, so that that is almost a slight public shame that's involved in that. No, that, that, that but it that, is also... That, that, it, could, be, that could be an element of it, although I think uh, my suspicion, and I don't, I don't know if the studies that have been done are fine-grained enough to show whether this is true, but my suspicion is that even if you're, like, the only car on the road, uh, it, it, it might still... Uh, it might still get people to slow down just a little bit, just because there's that just tiny, stupid little "Hey, good job, buddy!" You know, you're uh, you're, you're going the speed limit. Yeah, it, it's almost like um, maybe the metaphor be like if you are, you know, happily scrolling and tweeting and faving and retweeting, and then like there's you know a normal person sitting next to you, and they're like, "Hey, what are you up to?" You know, and it snaps you out of the um, you know the yeah, the, yeah. the feedback loop of of of, of the system. And I think the problem with a lot of Twitter's feedback loops uh, are that it uh, they they really reward our worst impulses. So, like an example that um, I did mention in the book, because it happened too late, uh, or, or else I certainly would. I don't think I. Yeah, I, th- I think this. I, th- I don't think this made it into the book. Um, you know, but is is a sort of perfect example of the way that this could work. Has uh, has to do with uh, Wendell Potter, who used to be. A uh, health insurance executive, and, and in that you know capacity, would you know would lobby uh, politicians, you know, on, on behalf of the industry, and then uh, like something like a decade ago, uh, he he had a come to Jesus moment about the issue, and and he and he he switched career, you know, he he stopped being a health insurance executive, uh, he resigned from that, and he has dedicated his life since then. Uh, to organizations that all have the word single payer uh, in their in their in their title to you know to campaigning for single payer national health insurance and trying to undo you know the damage that he did back then and over the summer I remember uh, there was a time when Wendell Potter tweeted what if you follow him is like a very boringly typical Wendell Potter tweet right it's the kind of thing that he he says all the time which is. Uh, the fact that people don't know how much you know single payer would help right now during the uh, you know during the pandemic is a sign of uh, of of how many people believe the lies that I told when I was a you know health insurance you know lobbyist uh, and that's the kind of thing he says all the time. In this particular case, somehow the algorithm delivered it into the wrong lap, and uh, this person who's like a I think they're like they might be 
wrote for Marvel Comics or something. They're like some like 10,000 follower uh, kind of Twitter account uh, had uh, saw it, uh, had no idea who Wendell Potter was clearly and uh, quote tweeted it and said, oh, my God, the fucking piece of shit actually admitted it uh, <laughs> and uh, had like 75,000 likes and retweets by the time enough people had told him who Wendell Potter was that he took it down. Uh, and what always hit me about that case is that it would have taken that guy literally three seconds or less to get this information. All he would have had to do is he saw the tweet. He would have had to just click Wendell Potter's name at the top of the tweet. And then he would have seen his, his Twitter bio in which he would have seen uh, organizations with the word single payer in their name. And he would have gotten a picture. And so my point here is not to like castigate this, this person, although also, you know, do better, uh, you know, but like, uh, but the, my, my point isn't to like condemn like, like that person, but like think about the, the structural incentive because the, why not? Right. Like, why is it that in so many of these cases, it would, it would just take the tiniest amount of like, huh, I wonder if like there might be context here that might help me understand this differently. Right. Uh, well, if the, if we're say, so if it's, you know, Marvel comics writer or something, let's say this person is sort of like amoral and all they care about is getting more followers on Twitter, then they made the right move because they got massively retweeted and they probably picked up, you know, 50 or a hundred more followers because they're the tweet, what like the algorithm promoted the tweet and so forth. So, so the, the, the system to the, you know, the, the world inside Twitter is set up to make, you know, that sort of, Thing. Yeah, and, uh, and, and, and it could be and it could be very well be that in this guy's head, you know, he he was like, uh, like he he's very comfortable and you know was very comfortable in his belief that he's you know promoting uh, promoting justice in the world. <laughs> most uh, most people are probably, but you know, most yeah, of the yeah, time. exactly. I, th I think more often than not, like everybody's got a story to tell themselves about why they're doing that, uh, and but because the malevolent you know feedback loop and in, uh, in the twitter case is you get that little endorphin rush from those you know all those likes and retweets you know for throwing the first stone in a pile on uh and so that really encourages it i would also say that the sort of toxic cocktail factors that helps make all this so bad is that um as much as you could say oh well you know just log off whatever it's not a big deal uh that uh, most Americans work in uh, non-unionized workplaces with at-will employment. Uh, so, uh, so oftentimes, uh, people are are uh, like rightly terrified that if if people you know mob them on Twitter uh, and you know the wrong person sees it or even the wrong person is made to see it intentionally through doxing, uh, that this this will have offline uh, consequences for them, and. I think the problem is to change that larger uh, that larger like cultural problem. You would have to uh, you would have to change the uh, the material conditions. You'd have to change uh, the you know like do things like end at will employment, rebuild the labor movement. In that last example, uh, maybe change the way that that, that Twitter works. Possibly uh, you know by uh, by by changing the ownership structure. You know so 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 it's not a for profit corporation that has a constant incentive to uh, to try to make their product as addictive as well possible, uh, et cetera. And, and of course, that's a that's a larger, you know, political project and, you know, one that I'm committed to, but it's certainly a long-term effort. Uh, and uh, then the slightly different, though overlapping question is what's wrong with, with the left? And part of what's wrong with the left is just that 
the same trends that infect everybody, infect us, because how could they not? Uh, so, like in that John Ronston book, uh, one of the uh, one of the most uh, harrowing stories in there is the uh, cancellation of of Lindsay Stone uh, for taking a uh, jokey uh, for you know her friend taking a jokey photo of her uh, in front of the silence and respect sign at Arlington National Cemetery. Uh, and, and in that case, it was like conservative, patriotic military veterans, you know, who were doing the, the canceling. So, you know, it's, it's certainly, um, uh, it's certainly something that, that impacts the whole, the whole political spectrum. So of course it's going to impact us. Uh, but also I think they, this, this overlaps with problems that are more specific, uh, to, uh, to the left. Right. Uh, So I was kind of trying to suggest earlier, because I think that there's, there's also this, this broader phenomenon that like, Tie, that I would argue is at least a thing that ties together uh, all of the uh, the disparate um, you know pathologies of the left that that I'm I'm complaining about in the book, uh, which is uh, what I I kind of call the uh, pathologies of powerlessness. The ways that because uh, anybody with political goals to the left of liberalism certainly at least in the countries that I'm most familiar with, places like the, you know, the, the U.S. Uh, and the U.K., um, and, you know, in different ways in other places, but certainly there, uh, that the left has been wandering around in the desert for a very long time. Like, even people like Bernie Sanders in the U.S. or Jeremy Corbyn in the U.K., who I at least would regard as good, honorable left social Democrats, uh, spent the vast majority of their lives as extremely marginal backbenchers, uh, and anything that was more radical than, than that, you know, was, was completely off the table in the sort of end of history era, uh, after the end of the, uh, the cold war. And because of that, I think that there's, there's this real temptation to start to think of left politics in this primarily through this primarily symbolic moral framing. So like my friend, Daniel Bessner, uh, we'll, we'll always point out previous guest of the show. Yeah. Yeah. Love Danny. So he has, uh, and he'll always point out, right. So when you read like Noam Chomsky and I love Chomsky, you know, and I know, and I, and I know Danny does also, but like when you read Noam Chomsky, there's never a point where like on page 198 or something, Chomsky pauses to say, well, if a socialist government took power, here's how it would handle that situation. Uh, and the, the reason I think, that, that that like just doesn't even kind of seemingly enter into uh, into Chomsky's head uh, is is not I think that the answers to those things are are obvious or at least I hope you don't think that right I mean like some some of these things are incredibly complicated and difficult um, you know trying to as yeah as Danny always says like trying to think about how winding down American Empire would actually work in practice uh, but because I think it would have saying like, okay, if a socialist government took power, here's how it handled this like difficult foreign policy problem, uh, would seem sort of weirdly irrelevant for most of certainly Chomsky's long career. It would be like saying, well, the day I'm enthroned as the emperor of the galaxy, you know, here's what I'm going to do. And, and I, I totally understand that. Uh, but the problem is that when uh, you basically reduce left politics to taking a kind of symbolic stand against the many injustices of the world, uh, then you not only don't worry about things that you're doing that might alienate, you know, people that you want to appeal to, uh, you don't worry about, you know, how to try to reach more people. Uh, you know, you, 
uh, you actually have the opposite um, psychological incentive, maybe, which is to really spend a lot of time saying, "Okay, well, look, I am taking this great, you know, moral stand, and you know, you say you are, but like, let's let, let's let's look into that, right? Are you really right? Like, are are you taking a, a sufficient one?" And uh, so that leads into some of the the kind of left manifestations of uh, of cancel culture, but I also think it ties together. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of other things that like the the ways that a lot of people um, certainly on the online left are very concerned with um, like trying to uh, defend the uh, the reputation of uh, of twentieth century despotisms. Uh, you know, right. So this uh, is this is the tanky issue that you devoted a chapter to. Yeah, yeah. Like 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 that. There's something like really perverse about that in the face of it because you think, okay, what. I mean, even putting the you know the, the morality of defending some really monstrous people to one side, um, like there's something really perverse about this because throughout the late 20th century, uh, certainly you know you couldn't have had like a Bernie Sanders presidential campaign in the 1980s. Uh, that, that that would have been unthinkable. Uh, that like uh, that's that somebody who uh, openly called themselves a socialist. Uh, could you know win 22 states like what happened in you know in, in 2016 that you could have you know several you know people who uh, who call themselves socialists you know in, in Congress that you you could have uh, you know Democratic Socialists of America start to become an organization that even if it's you know tiny by larger standards you know is is certainly bigger than uh, you know than, than any any left organization in a very long time. Uh, that like you couldn't have had any of that because uh, certainly to most Americans' minds, you know, socialism equals capital C communism, you know, equals the Soviet Union, you know, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, one of the biggest obstacles to say to any kind of radical critique of capitalism was, oh, you think so? All right. Well, well, do we have a society for you? How do you like this? Right. You know, you want to do you want to live under this? Uh, and so one would think that the very like. As um, enough time has passed, it's like the Cold War has retreated enough into the historical rearview mirror uh, that, you know, like a lot more people are open to to some kind of critique of capitalism without without hearing it as, uh, you know, I want to uh, I want to replicate, you know, uh, the uh, uh, this economically sclerotic police state uh, then. The, it, it seemed like the worst, most counterproductive thing you could possibly do would be to spend a lot of time insisting online that no, actually, uh, actually you know, those countries were good, actually. Right. Um, Let me. I want to share a, a tweet that I uh, yeah. I stumbled across a couple of years ago and and uh, screenshotted that. <laughs> probably this was a mean thing to do, but because it was probably just some like nineteen year old. But it was this guy who was um, saying how dis- how disappointed he was. To find out that Stalin, um, when Stalin married his wife, she was like sixteen, and, yeah. um, and this was like, fi- fi- like, so, like, wow, like, how could my hero have definitely done something Stalin did as bad as this? And so, yeah, so it's just like you know, history. Yeah, I think my my snarky thing was just saying like, history is complicated, fam. You know, uh, so all of our heroes have clay feet, even Joseph Stalin. So I think, I mean, part of this, and maybe this will be me critiquing, yeah, sure. uh, at, throw adding a different critique related but different critique is like there is a sort of like uh romanticism at least on some parts of the left for uh 
year for radical movements from years gone by. So um, Jacobin yeah, yeah. is the name of a sure. um, the the you know the leading left uh, periodical right now. Um, maybe. Yeah. Um, and you often and I think this went down somewhat, but you often would see. Um, people uh, putting gifs of uh, guillotines mm, um, yeah, sure. out there, and yeah, so there's. I mean, and I mean, you know, Che Guevara shirts. That's more of a thing from like twenty sure. or thirty years ago. But like, there's a string of yeah, just romanticizing the um, you know brief moments when like leftists had power, and even ones that probably, probably most people would agree today, like the French Terror. You know, like really mm. uh, screw the pooch on that one, and um, uh, you know, good intentions, I guess, but um, it didn't come. Yeah, it didn't yeah. turn out very well. And, but yeah, so like, um, it's it, it just like, because there, there were so few, like, successes to latch onto, yeah, right. uh, people romanticize um, this stuff. And uh, I think for the, you know, for the, 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 norm, the norm, norm people are generally not on Twitter, but maybe they'll encounter some of this stuff. But like, you know, the average person is not enthusiastic about guillotines, no matter who whose head is being chopped off yeah, yeah, yeah. and certainly not like Jeff Bezos or something like the average American probably thinks like, Oh, Jeff Bezos, like, wow, he made this company that will, I can order a book. It'll get here in 24 hours. Isn't sure. that great? So just like that sort of, and then I'll, I'll, any like sort of, you know, any small group, like people who are on the most extreme can sort of like hijack it and, and take it over. And that happens even more with the social media um, stuff of, of like, you know, like I said, like emotionalism, uh, making the algorithm promote stuff and so yeah if, if someone is like you know uh, all these people need to be up against the wall that's going to get 100 retweets or something whereas that is very alienating to the like the, the normie out there who, who yeah. doesn't know that it's all a joke or tongue-in-cheek or, or whatever yeah right well and of course uh as you say you know we do on the one hand want to make a distinction you know between um you know, between joking and really meaning it. Although I think it's also uh, when you you look at some of these subcultures, I think that it's often a really salient fact about them that that distinction is often unclear uh, to uh, you know both internally and externally. I think you know uh, exactly uh, exactly where the line you know is is drawn about what's what's uh, what's a joke and uh, and and what's serious. Uh, I think that uh, you know the I mean. You know, whatever. I mean, full full disclosure. I I, I write for Jacobin. I love Jacobin. Uh, but um, I, I've you know I, I think it's a magazine that's made you know amazing you know contributions uh, to uh, you know revival of the American socialist left. I've, I've joked to people that if I'm you know hit by a truck tomorrow, I want my tombstone to say like you know Ben Burgess, just 1980 to 2021 loving husband you know son and you know and and, and brother uh, was on the masthead Jacobin. Uh, but <laughs> uh, I, I I do I do take your point, you know, about like the uh, the guillotine jokes and stuff. Um, I mean, it's also kind of funny because, like, in that case, that's like a sort of uh, there's a jokey association between um, uh, socialism and like a uh, a capitalist democratic revolution against feudalism, you know, which which was which is what what the French Revolution was. Uh, but um, in any case. Uh, I, I think that uh, I think that especially when when people aren't sort of like you know reaching all the way back to uh, the uh, the 1790s, uh, you know to um, you know to sort of um, 
you know, be jokey about that, but, you know, but, but especially when they're talking about very recent history, uh, it can, you know, that can often raise questions about where the, uh, you know, like, like that, that line between, uh, you know, joking and, and being serious. Like I think about the, uh, left wing YouTuber counterpoints. Uh, she has also uh, she a previous ha- guest on, on, on this program. Nice. nice. So she, uh, <laughs> before, she has, before she became so famous that she wouldn't come on this program anymore. Uh, she, yeah, so she has a, a recurrent character in her videos, uh, Tabby, I think, who's a, uh, who's, who's like a sort of, um, is, the, is that the cat girl? Yeah, 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 it's like the, the, the like, uh, ultra left, you know, cat girl, and, uh, and there's a video, there's a line in one of those videos that always cracked me up, uh, where, uh, the, like, Tabby is, like, has some sort of, like, Soviet iconography, like, pin or something, and, uh, and, and, uh, Natalie is, is, is asking her, you know, what's, what's wrong with you? Why do you, why do you have that? She says, well, no, 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 it's, it's, uh, it's ironic. And, uh, <laughs> as she says, Oh God, not you too. Cause of course the joke is that that sounds like the, uh, the, the online all right, you know, that the, uh, this is constantly, you know, constantly playing with that. Like, Oh, it's a joke. It's a joke. Except when it's not a joke. Yeah. These, you know? these, uh, you know, concentration get oven memes. Uh, we're just fooling around with all this stuff. And... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I think that what you know what most um, you know what most concerns me up about this, and, and the point is not to like uh, you know wag my finger at like any anyone who's who's individually you know like um, I mean look it, like it, it would certainly be like a, a pretty weird performative contradiction for me to get mad. Uh, while I'm talking about this book about like, you know, like that, uh, that, you know, it's not okay that you told that joke at that time. But, uh, I do think that as a, as a larger phenomenon, uh, that, uh, the, the prevalence of especially serious and, and ambiguously serious, uh, defenses of, uh, of those, those Stalinist or quasi Stalinist, you know, regimes, uh, is, I think is very telling in terms of this larger story about, the left, uh, because it's a manifestation of, uh, I think, of, at least among other things, of the same problem, that instead of thinking about how to reach out to the uh, the, the vast multitude of normies uh, who, you know, might be ready to hear that, uh, you know, uh, that, that Jeff Bezos uh, has way too much wealth and power and, and uh and is not a uh, you know, and, and and is not a positive you know force in uh, in our society, uh, and and that he should have his you know wealth and power taken away, uh, but are are probably you know like if if you start talking about you know killing people, uh, you know I, I think most uh, you know most humans under most circumstances don't like it, uh, that uh, uh, that instead of thinking about how you're going to appeal to that vast multitude of normies, uh, that if you are very concerned with signaling exactly how performatively radical you are. I think that's where you end up getting into either. And, and it's funny because these two things are, are opposite on paper, but sometimes I see the very same people doing them either um, sort of doing this weird performative thing where you, where you defend uh, these uh, authoritarian regimes or this weird performative thing where you talk like a complete anarchist uh, who, uh, who thinks that they're like, um, you know, that we should abolish the police and we should abolish prisons and all this stuff, which by the way, every now and again, it always confuses the shit out of me. But I, every now and again, I do see somebody who somehow seems to be both. 
you know, that it's like, uh, we should abolish prisons, but also, you know, but, uh, but also the Soviet Union was great. And I don't understand <laughs> that one at all. Yeah. Um, abolish prisons, maintain the gulag, I guess would be the, uh... yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Abolish prisons, replace them with, 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 with exile to Siberia. And, uh, and re-education and yeah. Um, so. uh, yeah, right. Uh, and and I think in, in both cases, I, 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 it really does seem to more scratch this itch to show what an extreme stand that you're, you're taking against the various very real injustices you're reacting against, uh, that it indicates uh, any kind of serious like attention to how you would build a movement that would appeal to people to do anything about those injustices. Uh, because, look, obviously, uh, the, the Soviet Union is, I hope, no one's idea of a model for what a better society would be like. And on the other end, um, clearly, uh, we, we better have some sort of way of, uh, of involuntarily confining, uh, you know, even if you think that the, the U S as I do is incarceration crazy that we, uh, that, that we lock up far too many people for far too long for far too many things. Um, but that said, like, there surely does need to be some sort of mechanism for removing, uh, you know, rapists, murderers, you know, people who engage in domestic violence, et cetera, uh, you know, at a certain point from uh, the, uh, from the general population, uh, you know, for the, for the sake of, uh, of public safety. Uh, you also need on the way to, uh, to removing them from, you know, from the, uh, from the larger population, it, however nice and rehabilitative the place you, you remove them to, uh, you know, there. You know, you better have something, or else the plan, I guess, is just to kill to kill them, which sounds worse to me. Uh, or, um, uh, and presumably, uh, you know, you could argue that oh, it would be so different from what we have now that we shouldn't even call it police, whatever. But presumably, you do want some sort of uh, publicly owned entity that is professionally tasked with enforcing laws, which by the time you get to that end of that sentence, I think any normal person would say, oh, you mean police? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but if you don't want some sort of professionalized, publicly owned entity to do that, then I get really worried about what the alternative is. It's yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of like, the um, you know, Capitol Hill autonomous zone that flourished um, using, yeah, that, using that, those that, words that ironically. Ended up, that, that ended up killing uh, a, uh, an unarmed uh, black teenager. Yeah, multiple uh, people. Uh, I mean, yeah, but there's a lot of, I mean... A, 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 a couple of others, but like also just generally, sorry to cut you off, but it's like just generally, like that can't be the plan that we just have like that the, the United States just becomes a giant Capitol Hill autonomous zone because uh, one, I, I mean, I, don't, I think politically that's going to be a tough sell for very good reasons, but two... Uh, I don't want to live in that society. I mean, the idea that um, that you would just sort of have like informal civilian, you know, patrols that like uh, that that's that's how it would work. It's, I mean, it's it's off the wall. I mean, it, you know, it's it shouldn't be it should be it should, that sort of thing should be laughed out of even left spaces. But the people yeah, who are really the people who are really in, into it will, you know, drag your ass on Twitter or something, you say something bad about it, not even sort of the, like, autonomous zone and stuff, like, shortly after George Floyd was murdered, like, if you were pushing back against the people who are saying defund the police, then you were going to have an unpleasant day online. So it's sort of like, just, you know, shut up and go along kind of thing, because the people who really care about this are super exercised, and, you know, whereas the, you know, mushy middle it doesn't participate in this 
sort of thing at all. And so, you know, like defund, you know, abolish, abol- so, you know, there's abolish ICE, like that, that is right. within the realm of human possibility because it's just a, you know, governmental division right. that was created like in 2003 or something. So that could happen, right. but abolish prison, like extremely unlikely and like abolish the police. Well, that's even more unlikely. And like, it, it's just so, yeah, it's, it's, it's bad that that has taken over. And that was a dominant message after, um, after Floyd was killed because it's just not, it's never going to happen. And you, you know, there's so many more productive things one could, or better slogans, but you know, it's not like the, um, no, but, there's but, no central but, authority for deciding what slogan. It is popular. a problem, especially because, um, I think that on the face, like, I think there's a defensible reading of defund. I, I even think it's probably what most people meant, but the problem is that there's this ambiguity there. Uh, because, and, and to be fair, like this isn't entirely a matter of bad faith misreading. I think it's partially a matter of that, but I don't think it's entirely that because, uh, like I have also seen before defund the police came about, like sometimes people would use defund ice and abolish ice interchangeably. So, you know, that, that is a thing. Uh, I think that, you know, defund technically means like, you know, spend, you like cut funds from. Right. And so then the question is, well, how much funds are we talking about? And oftentimes the uh, the suggestion uh, was that, well, what you're doing is you're transferring money from policing uh, to other, you know, other things. Uh, people talk about counselors, social workers, uh, you know, like that you could have as the first response, at least, even if you still had the police as a backup uh, for some situations that, you know, currently aren't police, uh, you know, should be sent into, which, you know, which there are. There are follow-up questions that you could ask and, and picks that you could knit, but I mean, broadly speaking, that's the sort of thing you know that that I'm that I'm sympathetic to. I, I don't like the fact that people who uh, threw it around uh, often and like the, I'm not just talking about marginal people on Twitter. AOC did this. Uh, will will often um, suggest that you could have all these great like programs and counselors and social workers and education and spend money on the root causes of crime that you could do all this just by transferring money from police budgets, which just mathematically is bonkers. Uh, the, uh, they like, they, there just is not that much money in municipal budgets, uh, to, uh, to do that. I think, uh, some back of the napkin math, uh, you could cut, uh, the, uh, the operating budget of the NYPD by 50%. And I think it would just like head off, like, the proposed education cuts that year, but like, you know, you certainly wouldn't be adding any, any new money. Uh, but, uh, but I think broadly speaking, the idea that there was a turn towards a more militarized and aggressive style of policing and more incarceration that happened several decades ago. And part of the reason that it happened, and I think there's a, an analysis that's popular on a lot of the left that it was just like, that like the whole explanation here is just like racist hysteria out of nowhere. And I don't think that's true. I think that, I think that like there were like in the seventies, for example, I think there were real crime waves that people were reacting to that really happened. Uh, but, uh, but also I think you can like the more reasonable left critique is, yeah, there is a part of the reason for this turn is that it's both financially and politically cheaper uh, than having a, a, a more expansive welfare state, you know, to try to manage some of the social ills caused by poverty uh, that way. Uh, so I agree with all that. But the problem is, and the reason I, I think, especially at this point, you know, that it is worth, you know, thinking about other ways to say this without using the defund slogan, is that on the one hand, uh, conservative critics of that would 
you know, maybe say for their own reasons, oh, so you're saying, you know, we should abolish the police. That's what that means, right? Uh, even though technically those are different. But the problem is that uh, instead of like really aggressively pushing back on that in most cases, uh, there's a lot of waffling about that because for so many activists, their real commitments are like, like, like what, like they don't want to say, no, I don't want to abolish the police because they kind of do, or at least they don't want to alienate, you know, people who do. Uh, and, uh, and so you end up with, even though a lot of what I described, if you pull on it sort of a la carte, right? Like, you know, like you, you, you have explicit poll questions like, okay, uh, how do you feel about having, um, you know, that like sort of reducing police presence if it's paired with, you know, blah, 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 right? You know, and you have like various benevolent things like this. Uh, it doesn't, I don't want to exaggerate how much support there is for that, but it certainly pulls better than uh, defund the police does because at this point, most people hear defund the police and what they hear is uh, let's get, a, get let's get rid of police and just, just have it be, you know, I don't know, rich people can have private security and everybody else is shit out of luck. Uh, and, and, and that's certainly not going to be a politically popular program. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, the slogan, like reduce police budgets by 30% and redirect yeah, the yeah, money towards mental health. Like that's, that's harder. I mean, you know, reform the police or something or like fix the police. I don't know. And then you have like all cops are bastards and you know, the average American does not think that all cops are bastards. They probably have like a cop no, who they're no, related they, to. So, um, so that's also a loser slogan. They, they don't, and it's also like a weirdly like, and actually like that, that slogan is like very weird too, you know, cause it's like, uh, I mean, I sort of, I mean, look, if I wanted to, I could give a defense of saying that that wouldn't be entirely wrong, but also, um, but also I think it's just like, uh, it, it's like a weird hill to die on, right? You know, it's like every single cop who exists is a bad person. Uh, and uh, and that's not going to like resonate with most people probably, you know, because because they, they assume that people are complicated. And uh, and and two, um, that it, it's it's the wrong thing to emphasize. I mean, like the, the question... It's kind of anti-Marxist. Yes, yeah, anti-Marxist, you know, because the question shouldn't be... Um, like what is in the heart of any individual policeman? The uh, the question should be how do the police function as an institution, and how should that institution be different? Uh, like 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 whether and, and surely the point and like this is actually getting at like a I, I think a a big theme of the book, which is that like there is this weird way in which this stuff makes leftists uh, sound like conservatives uh, because you think okay. Uh, the like what conservatism is to a great extent at its core is about emphasizing individual morality, uh, emphasizing, you know, like, OK, don't blame society. You know, everybody needs to take individual responsibility, you know, for, uh, uh, you know, for 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 what they're uh, what they're doing. The uh, the problem is, uh, you know, the problem is cultural. You know, you need to uh, you know, you, you just need to have better values. Uh, and without saying that nobody should ever take responsibility for anything or that it doesn't matter what people's values are, cause that would be going too far. But like if, uh, without saying that surely, at least as a matter of emphasis, uh, we, uh, we like the, uh, the, the kind of, you know, spiritual core of any kind of left program should, should surely be saying the opposite of that. Right. You know, saying that, no, uh, if you're interested in social problems, what you should be interested in are social explanations and, and, and collective, uh, solutions, uh, but in say, insisting on all cops are bastards, 
are like 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 really just like I, I mean it's 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 a really weird way of 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 meshing those things that it's like oh so um so it's 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 very important that we think that every single uh every single member of this organization is individually bad uh rather than there are things about the way that the organization works uh, that lead to that lead to practices that we uh, that we want to uh, that we want to change. Uh, and and I think and it also gets especially weird. Uh, I think on the the more cancelly side of things, uh, when, when you think about things like a sort of weird left adjacent recent example, uh, it would be, have to do with uh, the magazine uh, Teen Vogue, which is as, as weird as this is to say out loud. Uh, Teen Vogue is actually a place that has published a lot of like super leftist content in the last like I don't know year or so. Like they have, uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure what happened there. Uh, you know how that how that came about, but like you can read stuff in Teen Vogue about like um, I don't know like Karl Marx or you know why we should have a general strike or things like that. Like like I said, it's, it's a very it's a very strange development uh, and. Uh, recently, like within the last month, uh, they, they brought in, uh, a, a new editor and, and by the way, I mean, it's possible as far as the political subtext of all this, that like the people who didn't like this, this new editor they're bringing in are much closer to me than the people you know, that the editor herself would have been, um, you know, that she might've, you know, she might've had a more centrist, you know, worldview, but that's not the point of the story. Uh, the, they brought in this new editor. So it's like a 27 year old, maybe 28 at this point woman who, uh, was revealed uh people people dug up and this woman is, is black we, we should know yeah. yeah also worth mentioning but yes 10 years ago uh when she was a teenager uh she had posted some some tweets that were like trying a little bit too hard to be edgy and like edging into being mildly racist you know that's sort of like you know sort of like bad dumb things that you know you could imagine a teenager trying to be edgy tweeting um Right. And, and they were specifically uh, making fun of Asian Americans or Chinese people or yeah. something along those lines. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Asian Americans, I, I believe, was the was 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 the uh, was was the issue. Uh, but also, again, 10 years ago, when she was a teenager and she had profusely apologized uh, for having for having tweeted bad things back then. Uh, and but uh, there was it was still such a controversy that she was. um I don't know. Uh, a, she resigned, which especially in a corporate context like Condé Nast, I often tend to read resignation as a nice way of firing somebody, you know, will let you resign. Uh, but at best, right, she she resigned under pressure. Uh, and it strikes me that there's something like really weird about this, because surely everybody who's mad about this is opposed to mass incarceration, uh, thinks that, again, America is just way too incarceration happy and, uh, and, and that, you know, pre, you know, if they're not prison abolitionists, they think that prisons should at least be much more humane and rehabilitative, that, you know, everybody should get a second chance, that we should, uh, ban that box on employment, uh, forms, you know, about, you know, whether you've been convicted of crimes in the past in order that everybody get a second chance. And, and there's just this bizarre performative contradiction at a certain point that's like, wait a second. So like a rapist who gets out of prison should have a second chance that, you know, and, and, and like they should be denied a job because of that. Uh, but somebody who's guilty of bad tweets uh, 10 years ago, right. like, they shouldn't have it. And, and, and that that's um, I think that's hard to wrap my mind around 
you know, just on its own terms, that combination of attitudes. And also, again, I think that the more we sort of present um, our, our critique of the society that we live in, in a personalized, moralistic, and often like harshly punitive way. I mean, oftentimes when I see people running that this line, there's no such thing as cancel culture. There's just you know consequences and accountability. There, there, there's something about those like you know all of that like talk of consequences and accountability that it's like that's '90s GOP shit. Like yeah, exactly. Right. Like, yeah, I mean, there's something like you alluded to this, but I mean, I think if you're uh, if someone who's on the left and wants to argue to their fellow comrades about this, about the cancel culture and cancel culture Jason stuff is like cancel culture is neoliberal. It's like saying, it's like viewing people as atomized individuals and then saying like, okay, if we excise this bad person, then, and someone else comes into the role or something, then like, we don't need to look at the system or the institution or the corporation or whatever. It's just like, okay, we, you know, we scooped out, um, you know, this young woman who would have been the Teen Vogue editor and, and, and that seems like some sort of victory when really nothing like what, what was, what's the practical effect for anyone who's not her and, and what has been changed, uh, really very little. Um, and yeah, it's just like, it's focusing on people instead of institution systems and so forth. And I would think that Marxists would be attuned to this kind of thing more than, uh, more than other groups, but I guess it's, yeah, it's just the incentives of online and and other things point towards finding a finding a human villain to exemplify yeah. the ills and then casting them out. I mean, that's that's part of human nature, right? I, I, no, I, 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 sure. I mean, I think that's I think that might be something that you know, like people in any political configuration, etc., would would have a certain amount of tendency to do. Uh, un, under any circumstances, I think it's I think it's exacerbated uh, by by some larger societal things right now, uh, and uh, and it's and I, I also think it's exacerbated by by some of the uh, problems with the way that the contemporary left is uh, that that we talked about, and and also I think just uh, some of the day to day dynamics of partisan politics uh, in the United States, by which I mean that. Like, even if your theoretical politics are way, way to the left of just ordinary liberalism, that doesn't mean that as you kind of experience the day-to-day stupidities of the culture war, uh, you know, you're you're not going to um, kind of reflexively identify with with whatever the team that seems slightly closer to you uh, seems to be uh, seems to be saying about about anything, uh, and uh, and I think that that often means that like some of the worst and dumbest things about contemporary American liberalism, uh, you're going to get people in organizations that are to uh, to the left of liberalism that are are not going to be immune uh, from from these things. Like that's just gonna like that's just gonna happen, and it's worth some, something at the very least worth being aware of. To uh, so you know so you try you know so you try not to be and I think that it does have uh, I think it does have offline consequences like I, I know we've been um, you know going for a while I'm not sure how how much long you want to go but like just uh, I don't want to introduce a whole bunch of new stuff right now but like just one you know quick thing that's a that's a potential uh, offline uh, example would be the way that last year for I think uh, like certainly. You know, and I'm not talking about like any kind of you know we we're talking about Marxism a minute ago, and I'm, I'm in this case talking about sort of much 
looser sort of social democratic, you know, uh, constellation, although also what I would argue is if you want to have more radical goals, you, know, you certainly have to start there. Uh, but uh, but I think that in 2020, there were a couple of incidents that really showed that the left is very vulnerable to uh, being um, to just having people demand that they um, that they renounce certain figures on the basis of uh, any kind of accusation even right of, of doing anything bad and I'm not even just talking about like spurious like silly ones like some of the ones we talked about today but like you know even accusations that if they were true really would merit this kind of response uh, so uh, like the obvious cases, uh, which both involve congressional candidates, uh, uh, you know, like who are going up against more centrist uh, Democrats, uh, you know, would be uh, Alex Morris and uh, Shahid Buttar, uh, uh, Shahid Buttar, uh, in, in both cases, who were people who, who were accused of uh, things ranging from um, like somewhat obnoxious and sexist to to wildly inappropriate, you know, if 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 they've been true. Mm -hmm. uh, Morris is the guy in Amherst, mayor of Amherst, or something. Who, in, in brief, correct me if I'm wrong. Someone sort of there, there seemed <laughs> things accounts emerge that he was, um, you know hitting on he is gay he is hitting on younger men in an inappropriate way some of them students at Amherst College and he was like a adjunct or something but it seemed it ended up coming out that it was all sort of like a hitchhub put together by these guys who wanted to uh get an internship with a sitting congressman <laughs> wasn't that part of it and that that just like no no that's that that was part of it right that's what Ryan Grimm at the Intercept uh reported that which which by the way is like um, I mean it's it's sort of at a right angle with the main thing we're talking about here, but like uh, you know I that's just got to be the most contemptible thing ever that you're going to try to like uh, sort of entrap somebody and destroy their their future for the sake of an internship like that's all it, it takes. Yeah, it's really it's sort of the ultimate in like the um, organization kid sort of ideology <laughs> is that you would like try, like libel and sabotage someone so that you could get an internship. Yeah. No, um, yeah. Yes, that was a pathetic episode all around. Exactly. And and I think in the uh, in the uh, Shahid Buttar case, uh, he was a uh, long shot uh, challenger against Nancy Pelosi uh, in uh, in San Francisco. Uh, and uh, there was, uh, you know, the, the details are different. Right. But I think that what the uh, what the two cases have in common is that somebody is accused of doing something bad. Uh, the accusations are, if anything, pretty vague. In both cases, right? Like, like they, they're put together. In, oh, hold on, my dog is going nuts. Just, that's, a, that's okay. Yeah, sure. We'll cut this out. Uh, I, uh, you know, everybody's, uh, um, everybody's getting vaccinated now. So we have like a friend over at the house, which is like the first time that's happened, and God knows. But uh, so she, you know, so she's going nuts, you know, about this this unfamiliar person being there. But yeah, in, in both cases, uh, like what they have in common is that there were some pretty vague accusations of wrongdoing that like were sort of calculated to sound really bad, but also weren't overloaded with details. Uh, and that there were various organizations uh, like the Sunrise Movement, for example, uh, in the Alex Morris case, uh, some progressive organizations in San Francisco in the Butara case, uh, DSA 
uh, various DSA branches in both cases, um, which is the uh, the one that most concerns me. Uh, I, you know, as as a uh, as a member of that organization, uh, who uh, officially withdrew their support for these candidates, not after conducting some sort of thorough investigation and talking to witnesses and trying to figure out what had happened, but just based on the existence of the allegation that that's 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 just all it took. You know, yeah, that, I like, mean, it's um, it, you know, I think it probably derives from an admirable sense that we should you know li- like listen to uh people who say they are victims and you know not dismiss them and then that there became this slogan like believe women or believe all women and obviously anyone who thinks about that for more than two seconds will realize like well that really doesn't make sense because you know women are human also and humans deceive and lie and so forth but like you know so at, at one point and probably you know not all that long ago it would have been like um you know, the official, basically the unstated official position was disbelief women. And, like, if a woman accused a man of some sexual impropriety, it was like, oh, she's just doing this for attention, you know, and and certainly the uh, various bad things that Bill Clinton did um, sure. in his career uh, played along with, with this kind of thing that, like, any woman who was accusing him of something was just, like, trailer trash, you know, uh, doing it for attention, that kind of thing. So so then the, the reaction to that you know, yeah, make, make, it, make is, it is actually amazing to to think back to that, like how far the pendulum swung, because in the 1990s, um, like, look, even the um, even the Monica Lewinsky case, which, you know, where where the uh, the behavior that was described was entirely consensual. Uh, but uh, some of the other accusations against Bill Clinton were, were of, of things that weren't consensual, you know, were harassment or worse, you know, mm-hmm. especially the uh, Winnie and Broderick case. Uh, but uh, but even in the even in the Lewitsky case, I mean, if you were going to apply the standards that are used to say, oh, this adjunct professor uh, who who was um, who was hooking up with students who weren't even his students, and by the way, that it turned out the whole thing didn't happen, but whatever, even the original allegation, you know, that who were like they weren't his students, but they were students at the same university that he would taught an adjunct class at. Right. Like if you were going to apply that to the Monica Lewinsky thing, I mean, my God, president of the United States intern. Uh, but back in the late nineties, you know, the party line was that uh, anybody who had a problem with this uh, was, was a, uh, was a period, you know, puritanical sexual McCarthyite. Right. Uh, and, and like, like move on.org. Like that organization was founded specifically to encourage people to move on uh, right. from, from yes. the Clinton uh, sex stuff. Yes. Uh, so yeah, it's, it swung wildly the other direction. And of course uh, the, uh, the correct place to, to, to stop would not have been where it was in the nineties, but, uh, but it's, uh, but it's also a, uh, it's also a big problem uh, because if you're going to, um, like just as a manifestation of like the many ways that that this kind of extreme moralism uh, and and willingness to sort of hair trigger you know pile onto people and all of that uh, can be politically counterproductive. I mean this this seems like a pretty straightforward one because uh, yeah first of all it's it's obviously unjust uh, to people who are accused of things because not all accusations are are uh, are true uh, you know like like that's. That's something that in other contexts, I don't think we have any trouble understanding, uh, you know, and uh, but beyond that, it's also I mean, strategically, it's a disaster because because uh, like if you really believe any accusation that comes along, 
then you just made yourself the easiest mark in the world for anybody who wants to pull the sort of thing that those student Democrats, you know, were apparently doing to uh, Alex Morris. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I wonder if, um, you know, uh, th- th- this sort of, you know, move- movement loosely called cancel culture or something started before the Trump presidency. But I do sure. wonder if there was sort of a, you know, the, the moralistic party is usually the conservative party. And then what? by embracing Donald Trump, the most amoral person who who has ever lived on planet Earth, <laughs> like it sort of flipped and um, and like, you know, the, the I don't know, this is a sort of off the top of the dome, but, you know, sort of like the, the sense that like, like the left embraced moralism in pop in politics because as in part in reaction to the right abandoning it. And then you see as Trump has faded, like the, um, there's sort of a re-embrace on by the GOP of moralism. And part, but part of this also funneled into QAnon because it was like the, um, those are people who like Donald Trump uh, and couldn't deal with like the cognitive dissonance or something of this total amoral person yeah, being yeah. the GOP president. And so they said, Oh, he's actually like undercover fighting against this. Yeah. He was, he, he, of was, pedophiles. he was out Jeffrey Epstein as part of a long-term sting operation. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's, there's people want some moralism in their politics and, you know, like Trump scrambled this whole thing. And now that Trump is gone, hopefully forever, uh, we'll see how these things reassert themselves. And certainly it makes more sense for Tucker Carlson to be angry about a moral transgression than for, you know, people like a Marxist, getting any random Marxist yeah, to be right. angry about some moral transgression. So we, we've gone uh, a bit longer than we intended, but there's one other sure. thing I did want to ask, which is um, not connected to the book, but is connected to our current state of affairs and mm-hmm. our current president, um, Sleepy Joe Biden, and yes. uh, and you know just finished his first hundred days. How I mean, briefly, how I mean, I, I assume you're surprised by how things have gone in this first uh, hundred days. But how would you know? What what do you um? Uh, are, are, you, are you happy? Not... Pleasantly pleased? Disappointed? What what do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there have been there have been some good things that have happened. I wouldn't exaggerate. Uh, I I think I think there's also been a lot of hype uh, about uh, about how good it has been in some of these areas. Uh, that is that's pretty exaggerated in its own way. So uh, basically, uh, I, I think that certainly I think the left can make can like kind of get the Biden presidency so far wrong in um, in at least two different ways. So one way of sort of bending the stick too far in one direction is to say uh, that like nothing that's that's been done is 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 good and like it's it's because because it's not possible that there's like anything that that biden has done that like obama wouldn't have done and that clinton would have done you know that so like really if you look at it hard enough like none of none of it is none of it is like that it's 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 just impossible that anything's anything's gotten better or even in the most extreme versions of this it's impossible that biden's done anything that like trump wouldn't have done right which 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 is goofy but there are people who insist on going there um so I think that's a mistake. Uh, I, I think that um, you know, like you can you can acknowledge that somebody's your ideological uh, nemesis, but also think that uh, they're not like uh, all of this stuff isn't frozen. You know, the circumstances change, the strategies, the different political factions are going to employ are going to change, uh, and and so you you do need to to be alive to that. But at the same time, I think there's a mistake that people make in the opposite direction where they like say, oh. Um, you know, Biden has like really dramatically moved to the left. And like sometimes the left version of this uh, move is to 
uh, is to like want to take credit for it, right? Like look at how look how far we push Biden to the left, uh, and and I think that that's a little too optimistic uh, because it's certainly true that deficit hawkery is not anything like what it was in Washington D.C. five years ago. Uh, that there, there there has been a dramatic shift on that, like how much money uh, the government is willing to spend, uh, you know, on. Uh, you know, sir, on relief, you know, and especially, you know, especially the stuff we like, relief for ordinary people uh, has has really has really dramatically shifted, uh, which is a good thing. It's a symptom of a lot of things happening that are very bad things like a unprecedented public health crisis that led the economy to fall apart. Uh, but it's but the thing itself is good. Uh, but also, I think that uh, this idea that Biden has really moved, you know, this this far to the left uh, I think is a little implausible because that kind of deficit hawkery has has really diminished across the board. I mean, if you look at the Republican positions in these budget negotiations, uh, they're way like the, like the Republican positions in budget negotiations now are like probably worse than Democratic positions were a few years ago, uh, because again there has been this unprecedented crisis that's really shaken everything up, and uh, and I think a lot of a lot of political actors now say that okay th- this really would be a disaster if we don't do something. Uh, so and- yeah, I mean, so credit to Trump for that for a lot of it. I mean, he um, you know uh, like three or four weeks into the pandemic, he like passed it was like a buy a voice vote or something like a huge relief package yeah. that included the first round of checks. And so, I mean, there were some, if, if, by, by the way, if he'd done a second round of checks, I think there's an excellent chance he'd still be president. Right. It's, now. it's possible. I mean, his strange personality had mostly bad effects, but part of it is good. So one is one effect is that he actually doesn't have any ideology whatsoever. So he wasn't like, right. well, you know, what would Milton Friedman say about, about this the way like Paul yeah, Ryan yeah, yeah, might yeah. have or something. And that he also just wanted to do things where that would make people like him so like sending people to check that his name was on that's a good way to get people to like you um but also he was just so um generally incompetent and you know would be easily swayed by whoever was talking to him at any given time but i think at least for some for the you know at least for for the immediate future yeah budget hawkery is dead and donald trump helped kill it in addition to like the coronavirus (laughs) playing a role a lot of people which isn't great but yeah uh I think, uh, yeah, which, 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 by the way, I mean, you know, just, just to throw this quick little bomb before I go, I mean, like as a, uh, uh, is, is one reason that, that I've thought for a long time that it's kind of crazy that so many, um, you know, liberals and progressives and, and even people on the far left, um, insist on saying that Donald Trump was a fascist, uh, cause I think, an, I think a fascist, uh, like would have, seeing COVID as a golden opportunity uh, for, for a, for a massive power grab and, you know, crackdown. Yeah. My, I mean, my line on that has been, um, you know, fascism, uh, fascism is an idea or ideology and you would have to believe in something in order to be a fascist and Trump only believes in himself. And he's also too incompetent to, uh, to seize power. But yeah, there's certainly that. It's like the, uh, like during the interregnum between the election and the inauguration, there was all this, you know, from my perspective, kind of on him, speculation in certain quarters about how, like, you know, oh, look, Trump is, uh, has replaced such and such a person at the Pentagon, you know, like that he's going to he's gonna do a coup. And I always thought that the best line about this came from Matt Taibbi, who said, look, it's not that 
I think Trump would morally object to doing a military coup. It's that even if he could somehow convince the generals to go along with it, um, the um, you know within the first two minutes of plotting out strategy, he'd get bored and leave to go watch TV. Uh, which yeah, but, uh, pulling off a successful coup is probably pretty difficult um, yeah, and yeah, exactly. far beyond that, it. You know, but like what Trump did with COVID, like I mean. The problem with Trump and COVID was the opposite of fascism. It was that he uh, was, was was it was like mass murder by neglect, you know, just just like unwillingness to take any sort of meaningful government action uh, whatsoever, you know, beyond you know those initial checks and sort of and and you know encouraging some lockdowns very early on, then doing a wild mood swing as he was so prone to. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's but, so many things that I think show. I mean, there was this whole long running debate. Trump crazy? Is Trump stupid? Is he crazy like a fox? 11-dimensional chess? I mean, if you just think, like, if he had embraced uh, mask-wearing and his, you know, like, there's 20% of the population would do whatever he says. If he had said, wear a mask, they would have done it because Trump says to do it. And he was too stupid to see that this was important. And my personal pet theory, which sounds like a joke but isn't, is that he didn't want to wear a mask because it would have smudged his makeup. Um, so that's why he didn't want to do it, and then, so he didn't encourage it. Uh, so that, if that, I think that's true, and that's totally farcical if, if true, but I think it is true. Yeah. But yeah, so there's, you know, he could have he could have seized power in in some way, uh, but was too lazy, incompetent, stupid to to do it. Okay, we've got we've got very long. I'll just say, um, you know, Sleepy Joe has been less sleepy than I anticipated for sure. I thought, you know, it, Trump was so bad that just sort of a return to normalcy kind of thing would have yeah, right. made most people happy, but uh, he's done way more than a return to normalcy, and the after some initial screw-ups, the, like the vaccine rollout has been you know better than anywhere else in the no, world. I, so I think, I think the... Like, I think the COVID response has been uh, obviously much more competent uh, than, uh, you know, than Trump. Uh, you know, I've got my criticisms, but definitely more competent than Trump. Uh, it's got uh, and and yeah, I think that the temporary relief uh, has has been good. I mean, I would I would I, I think that the the real question, like, I think the where I would say slow down a little bit with all the comparisons people want to make to the new deal and the great society is that none of this has actually created any sort of permanent anything. It's just, it's just sort of like, you know, tr- you know, trying to get us through a, a crisis, which I mean, it, obviously I'm happy it's happening, but I'd, I'd also make some, uh, some political distinctions here. And, you know, if you ever want me back on to, uh, you know, to uh, to go through all of my complaints about Biden, I can, I can certainly <laughs> I can certainly do that. Yeah, but. we definitely um, you know there's stuff in the book that we uh, didn't get to. You have a chapter about Antifa. You have a chapter about you know how um, like this you know, thing that happened at a DSA conference where people were told not to clap if they were happy or excited about something, but rather to snap because there might be some people out there who have like extreme sensitivity to sounds and, and so forth. And this ended up on Tucker Carlson. So you have there's more stuff in here that we didn't have a chance to touch on but we have gone on for a while so yeah if you'd be i'd be happy to have you back on at some point uh to talk Absolutely. about more of these topics um okay so the book once again uh canceling comedians while the world burns uh where can people find all your various <laughs> online content if they if they want sure to? uh so the the simplest way to find all the online content is to uh is to go to benburgess.com as the kind of one-stop shop uh for uh for for everything um, you know the the show and the Jackman columns and everything else, uh, and uh, and as as far as the uh, as far as the book goes, uh, it, you know it's available uh, all the usual book places. Uh, you know, given um, you know given my own uh, you know crazy radical commitments, the uh, the place that I would uh, that that I would encourage uh, people to uh, to buy it from 
is uh, Red Emma's, which is a worker-owned bookstore in Baltimore. You can order books from online, so that's redemmas.org. But, you know, I mean, I, I prefer that you buy it from Amazon to not buying it. <laughs> yeah, these are the these are the um, compromises you have to make in a, uh, you know, late capitalism, neoliberalism, whatever. Okay, so um, so thanks for coming on. And, you know, people can follow me on Twitter if they want to, uh, R-E-A-C-W. They can even rate and review this show in iTunes or Spotify, whatever, and that helps people find it and also as i mentioned in a previous episode you know sometimes i get into a little online tips with people on twitter and then they see the uh, link in my bio to the podcast and then they give it a, a zero star rating as a way to uh get back at me so i should probably not get into these kind of online tips that inspire people to do that but since i find myself you know d- doing it uh giving this <laughs> giving the show a five star or at least not a zero star rating and or even a review you know, as a way to fight back against the haters. <laughs> and um, so people could do that if they want to. Okay, so thank you. Thanks for coming on, Ben, and taking the time. And thanks to our viewers and listeners. And we'll see you again next time. All right. Thank you so much.